0: Welcome to the Tory podcast tales from near and far read to you by prothom data a charles history of england by charles dickens read to you by prothom data in the last episode william the conqueror the first norman king The brutal person, yet somebody who'd sort of unified the kingdom, had passed away. It wasn't the best of deaths, but nonetheless, the war for inheritance had begun. The conqueror's three sons, Robert, Henry and William the Red, were all planning on doing something. Now, Robert was just having a merry time. Henry was happy amassing his £5,000, but William the Red was heading to England to claim the crown. Chapter 9, Part 1 England under William II called Rufus William the Red, in breathless haste, secured the three great forts of Dover, Pevensey and Hastings, and made with hot speed for Winchester, where the royal treasure was kept. The treasurer delivering him the keys, he found that it amounted to 60,000 pounds in silver, besides gold and jewels. Possessed of this wealth, he soon persuaded the Archbishop of Canterbury to crown him and became William II, King of England. Rufus was no sooner on the throne than he ordered into prison again the unhappy state captives whom his father had set free and directed a goldsmith to ornament his father's tomb profusely with gold and silver. It would have been more dutiful in him to have attended the sick conqueror when he was dying, but England itself, like this red king who once governed it, had sometimes made expensive tombs for dead men whom it treated shabbily when they were alive. The king's brother, Robert of Normandy, seeming quite content to be only duke of that country and the king's other brother fine scholar being quiet enough with his five thousand pounds in a chest the king flattered himself we may suppose with the hope of an easy reign but easy reigns were difficult to have in those days the turbulent bishop Odo who had blessed the Norman army at the Battle of Hastings and who, I dare say, took all the credit of the victory to himself, soon began in concert with some powerful Norman nobles to trouble the Red King. The truth seems to be that this bishop and his friends, who had lands in England and lands in Normandy, wished to hold both under one sovereign and greatly preferred a thoughtless, good-natured person, such as Robert was, to Rufus, who, though far from being an amiable man in any respect, was keen and not to be imposed upon. They declared in Robert's favour and retired to their castles. Those castles were very troublesome to kings, in a sullen humour. The Red King, Seeing the Normans thus falling from him, revenged himself upon them by appealing to the English, to whom he made a variety of promises which he never meant to perform. In particular, promises to soften the cruelty of the Forest Laws, and who in return so aided him with their valour that Odo was besieged in the castle of Rochester and forced to abandon it and to depart from England forever whereupon the other rebellious Norman nobles were soon reduced and scattered. Then the Red King went over to Normandy, where the people suffered greatly under the loose rule of Duke Robert. The King's object was to seize upon the Duke's dominions. This the Duke of Cote prepared to resist and miserable war between the two brothers seemed inevitable, when the powerful nobles on both sides, who had seen so much of war, interfered to prevent it. A treaty was made. Each of the two brothers agreed to give up something of his claims, and that the longer liver of the two should inherit all the dominions of the other. When they had come to this loving understanding, They embraced and joined their forces against fine scholar who had bought some territory of Robert with a part of his £5,000 and was considered a dangerous individual in consequence. St. Michael's Mount in Normandy There is another St. Michael's Mount in Cornwall, wonderfully like it, was then as it is now. A strong place perched upon the top of a high rock, round which, when the tide is in, the sea flows, leaving no road to the mainland. In this place, fine scholar shut himself up with his soldiers, and here he was closely besieged by his two brothers. At one time, when he was reduced to great distress for want of water, the generous Robert not only permitted his men to get water, but sent fine scholar wine from his own table, and, on being remonstrated by the Red King, said, What? Shall we let our own brother die of thirst? Where shall we get another when he is gone? At another time, the Red King, riding alone on the shore of the bay, looking up at a castle, was taken by two of fine scholar's men, one of whom was about to kill him when he cried out, Hold, knave! I am the King of England! The story says that the soldier raised him from the ground respectfully and humbly, and that the King took him into his service. The story may or may not be true, But at any rate, it is true that fine scholar could not hold out against his united brothers and that he abandoned Mount St. Michael and wandered about as poor and forlorn as other scholars have been sometimes known to be. The Scotch became unquiet in the Red King's time and were twice defeated, the second time with the loss of their king Malcolm and his son. The Welsh became unquiet too. Against them, Rufus was less successful, for they fought among their native mountains and did great execution on the king's troops. Robert of Normandy became unquiet too, and complaining that his brother, the king, did not faithfully perform his part of their agreement, took up arms and obtained assistance from the king of France, whom Rufus, in the end, bought with vast sums of money. England became unquiet too. Lord Mowbray, the powerful Earl of Northumberland, headed a great conspiracy to depose the king and to place upon the throne Stephen, the conqueror's near relative. The plot was discovered. All the chief conspirators were seized Some were fined, some were put in prison, some were put to death. The Earl of Northumberland himself was shut up in a dungeon beneath Windsor Castle, where he died an old man 30 long years afterwards. The priests in England were much more unquiet than any other class or power. For the Red King treated them with such small ceremony that he refused to appoint new bishops or archbishops when the old ones died, but kept all the wealth belonging to those offices in his own hands. In return for this, the priest wrote his life when he was dead and abused him well. I'm inclined to think myself that there was little to choose between the priests and the Red King, that both sides were greedy and designing, and that they were fairly matched. The Red King was false of heart, selfish, covetous and mean. He had a worthy minister in his favourite, Ralph, nicknamed, for almost every famous person had a nickname in those rough days, Flambard. the firebrand. Once the king being ill became penitent and made Anselm a foreign priest and a good man Archbishop of Canterbury. But he no sooner got well again than he repented of his repentance and persisted in wrongfully keeping to himself some of the wealth belonging to the Archbishopric. This led to violent disputes, which were aggravated by there being in Rome, at that time two rival popes, each of whom declared he was the only real original infallible pope who couldn't make a mistake. At last, Anselm, knowing of the Red King's character and not feeling himself safe in England, asked leave to return abroad. The Red King gladly gave it, for he knew that as soon as Anson was gone, he could begin to store up all the Canterbury money again, for his own use. By such means, and by taxing and oppressing the English people in every possible way, the Red King became very rich. When he wanted money for any purpose, he raised it by some means or other and cared nothing for the injustice he did or the misery he caused. Having the opportunity of buying from Robert the whole duchy of Normandy for five years, he taxed the English people more than ever and made the very convents sell their plate and valuables to supply him with the means to make the purchase but he was as quick and eager in putting down revolt as he was in raising money. for, A part of the Norman people objecting very naturally, I think, to being sold in this way. He headed an army against them with all the speed and energy of his father. He was so impatient that he embarked for Normandy in a great gale of wind and when the soldiers told him it was dangerous to go to sea in such angry weather, he replied, sail sailin' away! Do you ever hear of a king who was drowned?' You will wonder how it was that even the careless Robert came to sell his dominions. It happened thus. It had long been the custom for many English people to make journeys to Jerusalem which were called Pilgrimages, in order that they might pray beside the tomb of our Saviour there. Jerusalem belonged to the Turks, and the Turks hating Christianity. These Christian travellers were often insulted and ill-used. The pilgrims bore it patiently for some time, but at length a remarkable man of great earnestness and eloquence, called Peter the Hermit, began to preach in various places against the Turks and to declare that it was the duty of good Christians to drive away those unbelievers from the tomb of our Saviour and to take possession of it and protect it. An excitement such as the world had never known before was created. Thousands and thousands of men of all ranks and conditions departed for Jerusalem to make war against the Turks. The war is called in history the First Crusade, and every crusader wore a cross marked on his right shoulder. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed it, please comment and please like it and subscribe. Please do let me know if there are certain tales from whichever part of the world you might be in that you would like me to read. Thank you.